I've listened to you jabber about jobs for the last time. Then I won't tell you, Jane. Oh, fresh, ain't you? Well, fresh, you can get out tonight. All right. Nothing matters when you haven't eaten for two days. Ain't you got any folks? No. Well, I know a lady. Fifty-fifty. <laughs> Thank you, no. You wouldn't have to ask me twice. Say, you've got pretty feet. Most of the shoes that make pretty feet, I always say. Say, I'll give you trust for another week if you give me the shoes. Throw in a dollar cash. Cash? You're crazy. Well, they cost $55. No. Hmm. Here. And if you tell my husband, I'll skin you alive. You're listening to Sassmouth Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Tallulah Bankhead had an eye for the real thing. She could spot a fake from across the room, whether it was a precious gem or a person's character. One way she measured someone's metal was by their reaction when she stripped off. For instance, Kieran Tunney wrote a play which glorified the celebrated Bankhead wit, and then he traveled from London to New York to beg her to sign. Two hours into their meeting, she wanted to know if he could amuse her while she soaked in a hot bath. Tunney loosened his collar, poured another glass of champagne laced with brandy, and steeped her in the gossip from her former stomping ground, the London theater scene. He passed the test. Tallulah had another test to see if a new friend shared her eye for quality. On her wrist, she wore two diamond bracelets. The first one was a family heirloom. The second was a gift from wealthy financier Jock Whitney. Could her new friend tell which bracelet was more valuable? One night over cocktails, in the living room of her New York City apartment, next to her portrait on the wall, the one painted in a pink rosy dawn palette by John Augustus, Tallulah gave the bracelet test to Evan Richardson. This was shortly after Richardson became her personal makeup artist in the early 1960s. He recalled that the first diamond bracelet was top drawer, but the second bracelet, he noticed, draped across the skin in a cascade of perfect gems. Richardson passed the test. He did Tallulah's makeup for her public appearances until her death in 1968. It's true that Miss Bankhead had expensive taste, and if we're honest, she lacked any kind of fiscal sense. When the comedian Patsy Kelly was flat broke and worked as Tallulah's personal assistant in the 1950s, she summed up her benefactor's unrealistic view of money. She said her idea of poverty was having to run her own tub. But who among us is good with money? Tallulah was an artist, not a bean counter and she took a casual approach to her luxury items. One night, she handed a long string of perfect pearls to a taxi driver for safekeeping. 
This was after the cabbie had warned her that she was about to enter a rough joint in the village. At the end of the night, the cabbie and her pearls waited at the curb. By every indication, Tallulah knew she was destined for the dramatic arts from age five. Her father had taken her to a vaudeville show as a treat after her tonsillectomy. Later, little Tallulah mimicked a performance from the show, a ribald number from a blousy old old trooper. Magically, she had remembered the lyrics and choreography of the woman's body act. The spectacle of a tiny child doing a number by a world-weary vaudevillian delighted her father. And when he was in his cups, he would rouse little Tulu from her bed to repeat the song. She was a born mimic. Later, her gift for imitations would make her a popular party guest, where she would give impressions of stage stars, such as Ethel Barrymore. Tallulah's impressions of Ethel succeeded in landing her her first significant role in Broadway in Rachel Crothers' play, Nice People. Tallulah's fate was sealed at age 10 when she watched a play for the first time in a theater. The show was The Whip during its run in 1912. Tallulah became so excited by the lavish melodrama, which included a car crash and a dozen horses on stage galloping on a treadmill, She was so excited she wet her pants. And writing about the play decades later for her memoir, she confessed that she still hadn't recovered. By blood and bone, Tallulah was an actress. Her first career break came after she entered a contest for New Screen Faces, hosted by Picture Play magazine. Marjorie Rambo was one of the judges. Tallulah forgot to write her name on the portrait she sent. Instead of throwing the photo in the bin, The magazine editors were struck by her beauty and poise. Picture Play ran her photo with the headline, Who is she? Tallulah was a media sensation before she even stepped on the stage. At 16, she packed her bags for Broadway. With her independence won, she built her craft and also carried on with Yves Le Gallienne, Libby Holman, Catherine Cornell, and Lillian Tashman. In her memoir, instead of spinning lofty sentiments about the nobility of her profession, Tallulah is surprisingly pragmatic. Acting was an art, but it was also mediated by the whimsy of the commercial marketplace. One had to be realistic about the money men, the backers, the producers, plus ticket sales. No matter what, the curtain went up at 8.30 every night. Acting was a grind when you were lucky enough to get a good show. It was a strain to play the same role night after night for months. Tallulah admitted that only about one in every 200 scripts was any good. A working actress had no choice but to earn her daily crust with a turkey. The real work on stage was to make a bad show or a mediocre show worthwhile for the audience. You couldn't hold your breath waiting for genius. Producers came to believe that she could keep an absolute dog of a show going for at least three months based on her name alone. By the sheer force of her talent, a hunk of coal became a diamond. Tallulah could make an audience quiver just by tossing her hair over her shoulder or by using a slinky walk on stage. The work meant everything. Tallulah adapted herself to multiple mediums over a career that lasted more than four decades. She was a sensation from the moment she walked on a British stage in 1923, and she accumulated more column inches than the royals. Among young women, the students, stenographers, 
clerks, and shop girls who attended her plays, she inspired feverish devotion. Girls queued for hours to get a seat and screamed when she took the stage. For the eight years she spent in England, the happiest period of her life, she was showered with bouquets and applause. On the American stage in the 1930s and 40s, Tallulah put her indelible stamp on Broadway shows such as Forsaking All Others, Dark Victory, The Little Foxes, and The Skin of Our Teeth, before other actresses interpreted them for Hollywood or for the stage. She made a Hollywood comeback with Hitchcock, where her glorious hair was as important to the dramatization as the lifeboat. In 1950, when Hollywood was in full alarm over the threat from television and moguls lived on aspirin and bromides, Tallulah did the impossible. She resurrected radio as the hottest show in the country. She signed a lucrative contract to play the Mistress of Ceremonies for NBC's comedy variety program, The Big Show. She clowned on the air with the likes of Ethel Merman, Groucho Marx, Fred Allen, Milton Berle, George Sanders, and Marlena Dietrich. In the 1960s, Tallulah made a splash in television as a flashy Batman villain. She traded exquisite bon mots on chat shows and made standout appearances in comedy showcases such as the Smothers Brothers. The times certainly had changed, but Tallulah outwitted the new kids in showbiz. What interests me for this podcast episode is the two-year period that Tallulah spent under contract with Paramount Studio. The six pre-code woman's pictures she made in 1931 and 1932 have been dismissed by many critics, which is irksome to say the least, because the brickbats are undeserved. Tallulah's pre-codes are an absolute delight, even if they weren't box office hits when they premiered. They deserve recognition and restoration. Pre-code Tallulah is a box set of my dreams. The way she tells it, she left London's skirts clean or debt-free in January 1931. But first, in order to leave, she had to sell her car and possessions to settle accounts with hotels and dressmakers. She was a star in England, but she didn't make all that much money there. And after eight years, she needed a new challenge. And who was she to resist the siren's call to the camera? Tallulah made it a habit of getting out while she was on top. Once her ship docked in New York, Tallulah felt trepidation. Even though she had been the toast of British cafe society, she would have to prove herself all over again in the States. Her notices were old news. that They meant nothing in New York. Tallulah's talkie debut was probably made easier because it was shot in Paramount's Astoria studio. She wasn't immediately thrust into Hollywood. She renewed friendships and made the rounds of the latest hotspots. Tallulah was initially alarmed by her screen tests. The grandiose performance style that she used on the boards would be unsuitable on a soundstage. She was horrified by the jerky movements of her limbs, which she felt looked as if she had symptoms of St. Vitus's dance. She hated her nose, and when she spoke, her mouth looked funny. Smaller movements suited the camera. Restraint became her watchword, and she adjusted herself to the new technique. It must have been scary to realize that everything she had done to win over an audience was suddenly of no use. 
One day, she was so nervous that she asked Adolf Zukor, the head of the studio, to leave the set. He did. Her Aunt Marie had waged a charm offensive the moment Tallulah signed with Paramount. In letter after letter, her aunt asked for a job as her niece's personal secretary. Marie was something of a local arts critic in Alabama and penned stories and plays. She argued that she would be an asset in the studio publicity department or story department. Marie wrote directly to Paramount executives, offering them ideas and publicity angles for her niece's film career. Tallulah sent excuses and a check here and there. Tarnished Lady, her talkie debut, didn't find an audience, but she's nonetheless compelling in a story of a marriage bargain with Clive Brooke. The picture was also the debut of director George Cukor. Tallulah and Cukor became lifelong friends. Cukor later blamed the dismal box office on the star, saying that Tallulah's eyes looked dead on screen and that she didn't have a face for the camera. Perhaps he was quick to throw her under the bus rather than admit he struggled in the new medium and hadn't figured out how to help her yet. Her pictures are loaded with delicious scenes. In My Sin, Tallulah works in a sordid Panama clip joint, kills her husband, and escapes a murder charge with help from Frederick March. After she becomes a successful interior decorator in New York, she meets Freddie March again and jokingly refers to herself as a waking goyle in perfect Hell's Kitchen accent. In the second remake of The Cheat, where every shot is a piece of eye candy, Tallulah gives an immaculate underplay for the run of the picture until she goes absolutely berserk for 30 seconds at the end of the picture and triggers a riot. It's magnificent. Working on the soundstage in Astoria, Tallulah discovered she had even less control about what happened during production than she had on the stage. In the theater, the author had the final word, and she had to play what was on the page no matter what her intellect or her heart told her about the character. But in pictures, the producer was king. As far as Tallulah was concerned, If you were lucky enough to get a thoughtful script and a sensitive director, the whole thing could be ruined by the arbitrary business decisions of a man who ultimately didn't care about the quality of art on the screen. In 1932, after filming three pictures in New York, Paramount sent her to Hollywood. She was aware of the stakes. The studio was disappointed with the reception of her pictures, and Paramount expected her to turn things around once she arrived in the film capital. Tallulah was a bit rattled about the Sojourn West and invited her friends, Audrey and Ken Carton, to accompany her on the trip west. On the same train, the trio met Joan Crawford and Doug Fairbanks Jr. Joan shared the name of a good hairdresser and promised to introduce Tallulah to eligible men. True to her word, Joan invited her to dinner one night. In typical Crawford understatement, She told Tallulah not to worry about dressing. Tallulah arrived in trousers. Joan was dressed in her finest and paired Tallulah with 10-year-old Jackie Cooper. In Hollywood, Tallulah had advantages other stars lacked. She could hold her own with luminaries from the film colony, not only because of her stage notices, but also because she had a good family name. She didn't have a hard scrabble background. 
Tallulah was a Southern belle from Alabama. As Doug Fairbanks Jr. noted, she wasn't shy about reminding people in Hollywood that she was a lady. Her grandfather was a U.S. senator. Her uncle was a senator. Her father was a congressman who later became Speaker of the House during FDR's administration. Tallulah embedded herself in Hollywood style. She rented a house from William Haynes and hired staff. She bought a Rolls Royce. She didn't skimp on wardrobe or jewels, which befitted a star. She was making $50,000 a picture, but she had expenses. A film star's upkeep was costly. She walked for hours each day and dieted to keep her figure svelte for the camera. And she willed herself to adapt to studio hours, rising at dawn instead of falling asleep to birdsong. Aunt Marie revived the campaign to join her niece's household, but that would dampen the fun. How could she chase Garbo, carry on affairs with Crawford, Stanwyck, and Gary Cooper, among other stars, with a nosy relative in town? At Paramount, she moved into the dressing room next door to Marlena Dietrich. The studio tried to use her as a threat against Marlena. Initially, publicists billed Bankhead as the new Dietrich. Once she settled in Hollywood, the publicity department manufactured a rivalry between the two stars. Studios have always pitted stars against one another. If box office receipts gave a star too much clout, or if they asked for too much in contract negotiations, front office executives would find another star they could hold over her head. Paramount had done it to Gloria Swanson with Lila Lee. They leveraged a feud between Swanson and Pola Negri. Paramount executives did the same thing to Clara Bow with Nancy Carroll and Peggy Shannon. Metro used Rosalind Russell against Myrna Loy. 20th Century Fox would use Betty Grable against Alice Fay. And famously, Warner Brothers did it to Betty Davis with Joan Crawford. In a 1932 press release, Paramount announced they were replacing Marlena Dietrich on Blonde Venus with Tallulah Bankhead. Ultimately, their ploy didn't work. Tallulah responded with her usual wit. She told a reporter, good, I always did want to get into Dietrich's pants. Marlena took the suspension like a holiday. She ate during the day and went dancing at night. The studio bluff taught the women a valuable lesson about dirty tricks in Hollywood. Dietrich and Bankhead became friends despite Paramount's efforts to divide them. Tallulah had fun with the fake feud. Knowing that Dietrich sprinkled gold powder in her hair for the camera, Tallulah appeared on set one day with a layer of gold dust on top of her lady garden. Then she flashed the casting crew and asked if they knew what she had been up to. Honestly, she always had a better angle than the columnists. On screen, Tallulah also spoofed the fake feud with Marlena. Tarnished Lady opens with a humorous take on the dramatic execution scene from Dishonored. Only in this version, Tallulah isn't smoking blindfolded in front of a firing squad. Instead, she's staged in a cigarette taste test for a magazine ad. On the lot, Bankhead and Dietrich traded war stories, drank coffee or champagne, and were united in their devotion to makeup artist Dot Ponadell. 
Dottie recalled in her memoir the day that her beloved miniature bull terrier died, both Marlena and Tallulah ordered a van with an assortment of pups sent to Dottie to choose from without knowing what the other had done. Dottie chose a white terrier from the van Tallulah sent and a Pekingese from the van Marlena sent. Dottie also noted that when Tallulah returned to Hollywood in the 1940s and signed to do a royal scandal for 20th Century Fox, she requested that the studio borrow Dottie for her makeup. On the set, Tallulah looked for Dottie, and she was told by the head of makeup there that Dottie had died the previous month. Tallulah was upset and rang Marlena. Marlena laughed and said, well, if Dottie died last month, who the hell made me up this morning? In 1932, Photoplay magazine noted that if the Bankhead girl gets the right film story, she'll skyrocket, for her personality gets through that silver screen. The prediction came true when she made Faithless. Paramount loaned Tallulah to Metro for her last picture under contract. It was the best film she made during this period. Faithless might be subtitled How to Live on 60 or 70 a Week and Like It. From the story Tinfoil by Mildred Cram, Carrie Wilson wrote a piquant script of meaty layers, salted liberally with wisecracks. Tallulah is relaxed and has a sparkling rapport with Robert Montgomery. They argue as winsomely as they flirt. At the beginning, she's a spoiled heiress who rages at her fiancé's insistence that they should live on his income. Robert Montgomery plays the fiancé who makes only $400 a week, a mere pittance. She has millions and presses for a three-month honeymoon in Monte Carlo. Bob Montgomery works in advertising. Tulula balks at his work, dismissing it as sausages, sausages, sausages. He's in the grubby business of getting his hands dirty. Tallulah is caviar and champagne, and she's repelled by the proletarian fare. She hates sausages, and she hates soup. The viewer knows that it's only a matter of time before she must eat her words. Sure enough, her financial advisors break the news that she's flat broke after the stock market crash. How can money vanish, she wonders. And, you know, I wondered the same thing all the time. Tallulah figures now's the time to exchange vows, but fate delivers another blow. Bob Montgomery has lost his job. She would have scraped by on 400 a week, but she won't marry a man without a penny. Fortunes turn, and Tallulah's character Carol Morgan is forced to grapple with losing everything, her money, her wardrobe, her jewels, her man, and her self-respect. She won't face up to being broke and lives on the hospitality of her friends. When that well runs dry, she accepts money from the nouveau riche who use her name for the social pages. She makes a fatal mistake and borrows money from the husband of one hostess, played by Hugh Herbert. Then the hostess calls her a social panhandler and throws her out on the street. Before she hits rock bottom, she falls into a tub of butter provided by Hugh Herbert, a lower-grade Babbitt who wears a starch white collar like a noose. Bob Montgomery contributes to the heart of the picture. I've never seen him more appealing. No matter how low she sinks, whether it's the bed of roses or picking up men on the street, 
Bob wipes the slate clean. The past is forgiven. During one scene, his brother gives out to him, calling Tallulah every cheap name in the book. As far as Bob is concerned, it never happened. They starved together. They lived on stolen milk and hope. He couldn't turn his back on her or give her up. And that makes him a swoon merchant. One day, while she watched The Rushes at Metro, Tula noticed her voice sounded funny all of a sudden. The sound engineers explained that her voice was too low for Bob Montgomery, whose voice registered higher on the scale. Men in the editing booth adjusted her voice. Tallulah objected until they restored the original audio. You don't fool around with a trademark voice. Without her deep voice, bouncy as a foxtrot, she is a pretzel without the salt. The studio borrowed William Axe's score for Letty Linton for Tallulah slide down the social register. But her wardrobe by Adrian is an original, designed just for her. Adrian creates sartorial cues which amplify the plot and the character's interior life. When she meets the money managers who deliver bad news about her lost fortune, Tallulah wears a veil, looking like she's dressed for a funeral. In another scene at the roulette wheel, Adrian designed a white gown with a red scarf accent across the front, and her gown somehow calls to mind a casino chip. Her arms and throat are bare in this scene. She's hopped all of her baubles to stay afloat, sponging off the rich. Hugh Herbert advises her to bet everything on number 13. She doesn't see the trap he set and loses the last of her dough. While she's a kept woman, she's dressed in a silk bias gown loaded with jewels. She's overstyled in a way that she had never been when she was an heiress. In her bed of roses flat, she's rigged out because she's lost her money and now needs tangible reminders that she has access to wealth, that she's not poor. Tallulah's silk and jewels are ill-gotten fakes, and that's why she tears them off and throws them at the mirror when, and walks out when Bob Montgomery sees that she sold herself short. When the rent comes due in a flophouse dive, instead of taking the shirt off her back, a landlady, played by the delightful Louise Klosser Hale, takes the shoes off her feet. Tallulah hasn't eaten in two days at this point, but she wears shoes that cost $55. The shoes buy her another week in a dingy room and a bowl of soup. The way Tallulah shakes and quiets a sob before she eats the soup that you know she hates because she's starving is a gut punch. Adrian once said in an interview, few people in an audience watching a great screen production realize the importance of any gown worn by a feminine star. They may notice it's attractive and they would like to have it copied, that it's becoming, but the fact that it was definitely planned to mirror some definite mood to be as much a part of the play as the lines or the scenery seldom occurs to them, but it is most assuredly true. Adrian's designs are a sartorial storyboard for the character's moral education. At one point, Tallulah is forced to pick up men to buy medicine for her husband. 
She dabs some blusher on her drawn cheeks and wipes a lipstick over her mouth in three broad strokes. Her makeup application tells you everything about her grim chore. It's a half-hearted paint job, devoid of glamour or pleasure. After she picks up a man or returns with the medicine, the landlady tells her, all the real things we women do for our men, we can't even tell them about it. That must have resonated with women in the audience who knew desperate times. Motion Picture Magazine ran an interview with Tallulah by Gladys Hall one month before Faithless premiered. The headline asked, Has Hollywood cold-shouldered Tallulah? The profile slates her reputation among the A-listers. Hall reports, In Hollywood, where dirt is dug with dinner forks, leading hosts such as Marion Davies, Connie Bennett, and B.B. Daniels are not home to Tallulah. She was struck off the guest list for kiss-and-tell stories. Among the swell set, she gave vivid details about her erotic adventures at every table she joined. Hall pointed out that stories of her conquests were often told when the lover in question was in the room. Her play-by-play recollections were often unflattering. Unfazed by the clutching of pearls or embarrassed reactions, Tulula charged on with her ribald accounts. In Hall's estimation, she says she is like a gilded bomb invited to rest among the lilies of the field. Hollywood profited by frank depictions of sexuality on the screen, but it didn't want to hear about notches on Bankhead's bedpost over the fish course. More to the point, masculine egos withered when skewered by one of her barbs. You can imagine the matinee idols who turned asparagus green over a scathing review from Tallulah Bankhead. When Gladys Hall asked Tallulah, Whether it was true in the interview, she replied that if Hollywood had given her the cold shoulder, she hadn't felt the chill. She defended herself, saying maybe she hasn't reciprocated invitations quickly enough. She also noted her party routine was just an act, a defensive shield for protection. And she contended that most of it was just hot gossip. Hall presents the interview in Tallulah's stream-of-consciousness style, which means she often jumps from one topic to the next. She complains that no one has ever given her a leg up. She's had no angels in her life. She's worked hard. Can she help it if she's driven by ambition and the will to succeed? Tallulah insists that she's deadly serious about her work, her career, about money and love. But during the interview, she winds up confirming the rumors. She admits to casual hookups, saying she might meet a man and have an affair with him an hour later. Maybe part of the reason for her candor was because Tallulah had been next door drinking champagne with Marlena Dietrich when Gladys Hall came to the studio. Tallulah explains that she feels things intensely. When she's on top, she might rip the stars from the sky and gut the moon. When she's bored, no hell is so dark and odorous. She said, I might offend morals, but never good taste. Tallulah explained that her secretary tried to keep her in check during interviews and noticed that the woman stood in the doorway at that moment, gesturing wildly. Then Tallulah dropped a bomb. 
She explained the real problem. If anything was the matter, it wasn't Hollywood's opinion of her. She confessed, the matter with me is I want a man. The magazine printed her quote in all capitals. She hadn't had any affection for six months, which couldn't be true according to the accounts she gave at dinner parties, but she continued to explain. She needed to be in love. She needed affection. It had been six months. I need a man, she said once more. And it's rare to see a magazine interview from the 1930s where a film star admitted that she just wanted a good role in the hay. Fan magazines and the studios were mutually dependent on each other. They were in business together. Most often, interviews were monitored and sanitized. But unfiltered Tallulah inevitably slipped through the studio gatekeepers. Paramount told her to deny she had ever said anything. The blowback was immediate. Aunt Marie wrote a scathing letter telling her niece she should be ashamed of the grief that she caused her father. Marie scolded, your words sounded like the yapping of a hot canine locked up in the kennel. You don't need a secretary, you need an attendant. Tallulah did feel remorse. She did the only thing she could do and denied she'd ever said it, falling back on exaggeration by the columnist. Will Hayes reprimanded motion picture magazine editors and Gladys Hall for the story. The jug-eared Puritan created new offense to add to his list that governed morality. Hayes charged Tallulah with verbal moral turpitude. Around town, Tallulah called Hayes a little prick. Even though the interview drummed up publicity and made Faithless a hit at the box office, both MGM and Paramount decided she was a loose cannon. Mayer didn't like racy headliners. If Metro stars did hot stories, the studio went out of its way to reassure the public that in their spare time, they were ladies of no uncertain virtue. Paramount was hedging its bets on another stage star to keep the lights on. Studio executive Al Kaufman broached the matter of her contract renewal. Paramount would pick up her option, but only if she agreed to forego her contractual raise and stick at the same salary. And Tallulah took offense. Why should they be able to change the terms of the contract when it suited them? Why should she agree to a bad bargain? She ended the negotiation with Kaufman and called it quits. Previously, she had said she didn't want to leave until she made a hit, and now she had. Despite the lavish lifestyle and spending, she left town with $200,000 in the bank, a soft cushion while she hunted for a stage hit. Paramount counted on Mae West to save them from bankruptcy. They gave Mae Tallulah's dressing room. Although May saved them from creditors in a few years, they would turn her back on her and fold from pressure from the Bream office, and she was forced out of Hollywood as well. Loyalty wasn't in their business model. Back in New York, Tallulah had many more acts to play in her showbiz career. It was still only the beginning. Thanks so much for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. Tallulah, My Autobiography by Tallulah Bankhead, published in 1952. Miss Tallulah Bankhead by Lee Israel, published in 1972. Tallulah, The Life and Times of a Leading Lady by Joe Lobenthal, published in 2004. Tallulah, Darling of the Gods by Kieran Tunney, 
published in 1972. The Star Shiner, Memoir of a Hollywood Makeup Artist by Evan Richardson, published in 2013. People Will Talk, Interview with John Coble, published in 1985. On Q by Gavin Lambert, published in 2000. The Girls, Sappho Goes to Hollywood by Diana McClellan, published in 2000. Hollywood Lesbians, published by Bose Hadley, published in 1994. Gowns by Adrian, The MGM Years, 1928-1941, by Howard Guttner, published in 2001. About Face, The Life and Times of Dottie Ponadell, Makeup Artist to the Stars, by Dorothy Ponadell and Meredith Ponadell, published in 2018. My- Marlena Dietrich by her daughter, Maria Riva, published in 1992. The Fixers, Eddie Mannix, Howard Strickling and the MGM Publicity Machine by E.J. Fleming, published in 2005. Special thanks to Tom O'Mahony for sound editing. Thanks very much.